This is Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Macro Voices episode 210 was recorded a day early this week on Wednesday, March 11th, 2020. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices is brought to you by TopTradersUnplugged.com, a podcast dedicated to quant and rules-based investing, helping investors overcome behavioral biases. Merck Investments founder Axel Merck joins me as this week's feature interview guest. We'll discuss everything from the stock market to bond yields and whether they can go negative in the United States to gold and why gold mining shares haven't done as well as the metal itself. And, of course, our post-game segment will feature yet another of Patrick's famous chart books. We'll do the post-mortem analysis on what happened in the market on Monday and discuss possible scenarios for what might come next. And I'm Patrick Serezna. Now, Eric, I've been bracing myself for one of those half-an-hour market wraps where you go deep into the coronavirus. Is that what I should be expecting this week? Hey, you brought your pillow with you, huh? Uh, <laughs> I was afraid it was going to go even longer this week, Patrick, because there is a lot to talk about on the coronavirus story and also, of course, epic events in the crude oil market. But there's good news. We had a couple of requests on Twitter over the weekend for more special episodes dedicated just to COVID-19 and to crude oil. And I explained as politely as I could on Twitter, like, hey, guys, sorry, but our policy is only to produce extra episodes when we have either ad revenue or donations to pay for the production costs. So unfortunately, no extra episodes planned this week. Well, wow. As soon as I said that on Twitter, the donations started rolling in, including several $250 donations and one $500 donation. So uh, in total, those donations that we received pay for two more episodes. We weren't planning to do any more this week, so we're kind of reshuffling here. I'm going to try to get two more out before the week is out. One all about COVID-19 coronavirus commentary, because that can fill a podcast by itself. There's so much going on. And then another one, the $500 donor requested Tracy Shukart. So you asked for it, you got it. Uh, We will have Tracy hopefully airing on Friday, or at least that's the plan right now. Please bear with me if the schedule changes. Again, we're, we're shuffling things around at the last minute here. So the moral of the story, folks, is that for those of you who either made money or saved money that you otherwise would have lost in the market, thanks to our recent market calls, the moral of the story is ask and you shall receive a Twitter answer saying no, but donate and you shall receive extra podcast content intent. And if you really want to leverage your resources, use your professional network to help us find more long-term strategic sponsors for Macro Voices so that we can bring you even more content in coming months. Macro Voices is a fantastic opportunity for advertisers because we've got a very sophisticated audience of finance professionals and ultra high net worth individuals in family offices. Top grade stuff here. But we need your help getting the word out because frankly, the sponsors or prospective sponsors that I'm talking to keep asking me what it would take to get Jim Cramer on the show. And I, I can't answer that politely. So we really need your help getting people who understand what we do, what we're about, and what audience we address. We need to find some sponsors, and we'd really appreciate your help. Okay, well, I'll believe that you can do an abbreviated coronavirus update only after I hear it. So I'm starting my uh, stopwatch right now, Eric. 
Okay, well, the first and most important point, it is still totally not priced in. What's coming is going to be really ugly, folks. And it's not a question of if. It's a little bit more on the when, but it's not far off at this point. The next month is going to be where this turns really scary. And it was easy to see coming a month ago, but it seems like the market's not going to react until it happens. The market's ability to anticipate this one completely baffles me. So the worst is yet to come. I'll do a whole podcast explaining what I mean by that and why I think the worst is yet to come and what I think is coming and so forth. What the market is doing now is it's responding to just fluff news. Dr. Fauci was on the air today saying that this is 10 times more deadly than the seasonal flu. Well, first of all, that's wrong. The real number is between 28 and 55 times more deadly. But that's been known for a month. This is not news. The market reacts to headlines like that as if that was the big news. Big news has yet to come. It's going to be a lot uglier than what we've seen so far. So markets are still completely in denial. I know, Patrick, that you've been talking about, oh my gosh, we got to do a post-game chart book to talk about the huge move on Monday. I think Monday was an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny little sample of what is still to come. So the peak of this crisis won't occur until April and May, but I think the next two to three weeks is when the shit's going to hit the fan in a way that finally the market wakes up and realizes, okay, United States is not immune. We're going to be looking just like Italy. Our hospital systems are going to be overwhelmed. It's all coming and it's coming soon. So Monday was just a dress rehearsal for something much bigger still on the horizon. Okay, what's the time on the stopwatch? <laughs> Let's go on. So the S&P 500 is pretty much trading right along its week lows. I mean, we're just a stone's throw from 2700 at the time when we're uh, recording this. How are you sizing up the situation? Well, on Jim Bianco's list of the top 20 down days in uh, world history for the S&P 500, there are eight separate days from the 2008 crisis that all stand in that top 20 list, five, six, seven, eight percent down in one day. Monday was just the first and I think almost certainly not the biggest of the COVID-19 related big down days. So yeah, Monday was a big deal. It was, a I don't know, it was number seven or something on the all-time list of down days on the S&P. There's a lot more still to come because we're still in denial about what's coming. Even as recently as I think Tuesday this week, yesterday, President Trump was still tweeting saying it's all going to blow over. It's going to go away on its own. There's nothing to worry about. You know, I don't know that worry and fear and panic are good emotions, but there's a whole lot to be concerned about. And we're going to go through something very difficult that's going to have profound economic implications that are not priced in. So I don't know by the end of the week, I I think maybe we'll see new lows, certainly by the middle of next week, as we see this exponential case count growth in Europe. Just today alone, Patrick, on Wednesday, 2,313 new cases, not total cases, but new cases just reported today alone in Italy, bringing Italy's total up to 12,462 cases. They were at about 2,000 cases total a week ago. Meanwhile, we've got a lot of other countries in Europe, Spain at 2,200 cases, Germany at 1,900 cases, France up to 2,200 cases today, Switzerland uh, coming up on 1,000 quickly here. There's lots and lots of countries that are about where Italy was a week or two ago. They're going to be where Italy is today in the next couple of weeks, and so is the United States. So I don't think you've seen anything yet. 
I would also say that as far as what's coming, I don't think stocks have been the best way to play the downside. Certainly, you want to hedge any risk exposure that you have if you're long in the stock market. But, you know, I have added puts and outright shorts on the S&P now. And in hindsight, I wish that I wanted to diversify. I put most of my downside bets on this in the crude oil market. That was clearly the place to be. I I think I called the virus thing correctly. It was not possible for me to see the OPEC and Russia falling out coming. But needless to say, that helped my trade. I put about 90% on crude oil and about 10% on shorting the S&P. I should have put that on long bonds. That was a, a better trade. So I think if you're trying to, you know, speculate on this event. Shorting stocks has so far been the least effective way to do it. Bonds and crude oil have been where the trade is. And I think that uh, both bond yields and crude oil are also going lower. All right. Well, let's move on to the dollar because obviously that funding currency issue caused uh, the dollar to have a pretty heavy break. And uh, now we're getting a bit of a reaction. We're slowly bouncing. We're uh, not yet at the 97 handle, but uh, certainly well off the lows. Do you think that's it for the selling on the dollar or do you think the US dollar is a little bit more to go? I'm still putting myself in the handicap booth on this one, Patrick. I got the dollar call totally wrong. I thought that this event was going to be extremely dollar bullish. As you say, the reserve currency funding issue explains parts of this. The the fact that the Fed has kind of taken some panic moves here undermines confidence in the dollar. Lots of reasons that I can explain this away. But frankly, Patrick, I got this one wrong, and I got the, the other parts of the virus story very, very right. So I'm trying to focus on what I seem to be good at and not what I'm bad at, and I'm not sure where the dollar's headed. Eric, let's move on to crude oil. And the first thing I want to point out is uh, I saw some trolls on Twitter calling you out for having covered your uh, S&P put options at the market top, and which, of course, you did, moving a majority of your funds over to a crude oil short. And all I want to say is, well, you know, S&P is down 20%, but uh, crude oil, since your call, was down 50%. So uh, kudos to you. Well, thanks. I can't take credit for that. I I do credit myself for having very accurately seen what was coming with the coronavirus situation more than a month ahead of time. But frankly, if anything, I got that one wrong by being too early with it. I was too early putting those S&P shorts on. And as far as the 50%, I didn't see, I I did think we were going to get to $26 on crude. I still think we're going to get back down there as a result of the coronavirus situation. That's been accelerated dramatically by the falling out between Saudi Arabia and Russia. So I can't really take credit for seeing that one coming, but the, the trades have worked out. I want to. I, I don't want to brag about success in the market, though, in this one, Patrick. We have, as Javier Blast pointed out on Twitter, you know, we've got a lot of listeners who work in the oil patch who are going to be absolutely screwed over by these events. And this is not a happy time. I did make money on it. I, I wish I had made money on something else because, uh, frankly, I wasn't expecting this falling out between Russia and OPEC+. Uh, I thought it was going to be coronavirus that was going to do damage to the oil market. And unfortunately, I I think that the worst is still ahead. And likewise, the whole country is going to suffer through a lot more than most people think is coming with coronavirus. So my heart goes out to the people who are adversely affected. I I wish that if I was going to be successful trading something, it was something else. In any event, let's get to oil. The really big story 
certainly I've already explained the coronavirus and why I think that is going to take oil prices lower. The big story is the falling out this week between OPEC Plus and Russia. As I reported in last week's market wrap, basically there was an OPEC Plus meeting. They said, we got to cut. Everybody's got to join in. Russia said no, left the meeting. They tried to spin a press release saying, okay, we're going to announce that there is a cut contingent on Russia coming to their senses and joining in with us. Russia confirmed they still said no on Friday afternoon. That really brought the market down. And then on Saturday, Mohammed bin Salman surprised everybody by basically saying, okay, if you want to play that way, fine. We're going to totally ramp up our production, dramatically increase production, and allow the oil prices to crash to teach you a lesson, Russia, and you better come back to the negotiating table. Russia has not come back to the negotiating table. Everybody's standing their ground, and it looks like that's going to exacerbate the price down action, which I thought was already going to be very strong because of the coronavirus. Now, if Russia could be somehow coerced to come back to the negotiating table, that might happen as early as next week on the 18th. There's an OPEC plus meeting. Russia has agreed to send a delegate. If somehow Russia caved and said, okay, uh, we want to play ball now, we're going to agree to whatever production cut, million and a half barrels you want to do in Q2, will participate in full, that would certainly reverse the direction of the oil market in the short term. But I think that's because the market is yet to price in what's really coming with respect to the coronavirus story. Uh, I think we're going to get back down to $26 either way, but we'll get there much more quickly if Russia continues to stand their ground and not agree to the big production cut that Saudi Arabia wants. So how did the inventory numbers come out in, Eric? They came in today at crude oil building 7.7 million barrels. That's a much bigger build than was expected, so that would normally be very bearish. The thing is, it was offset by drawdowns in finished products. Gasoline drawing down 5 million barrels. Distillates drawing down 6.4 million barrels. Meanwhile, Cushing, Oklahoma, building 704,000 barrels. So between gasoline and distillates, you got 9 million barrels of drawdowns on finished products against a crude oil build of 7.7. They kind of canceled themselves out. Out, and uh, you ended up with down action on the tape, but it was muted. And it, just 20 minutes later, it was back up to where it was before the news came out. Very interesting to me, though, Arbob gasoline went straight down with crude oil. Normally, you would expect when you have a big crude build and a gasoline draw, normally you would get a, a crude price down and a gasoline price up on that. We didn't see that today. I don't know if that means anything. U.S. production, 13 million barrels, ticking down one tick. It was 13.1. 1 million barrels last week, which was a new all-time record. We're back down to the previous all-time record of 13 million barrels. All right, Eric, let's move on to gold because I would have thought that uh, with the market weakness that uh, gold may have still acted like that risk-off asset. But uh, really, uh, since bonds have seemed to peak out, gold seems to have peaked out with it a little bit from that correlation. What's your take on uh, gold trading here around uh, 1638? Well, everything that's happening right now is super duper bullish for gold in the long run. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I think that gold is going well over $2,000 an ounce in the next several years, certainly probably in this year. I wouldn't be at all surprised if by the end of this year we're above $2,000. The thing is that 
if the stock market crashes, and I think it's likely to, but frankly, you know, in this crazy world of central bank intervention, I suppose anything's possible. Monday didn't count, though. That was not a stock market crash. If we had several days in a row the size of Monday, that would be a stock market crash. It's in those circumstances where traders are up against really serious margin calls, where you could see gold sell off dramatically, as it did in 2008. Not because the fundamentals are bad, but just because people have to raise cash to cover their margin calls and they're selling whatever they got. So it is not guaranteed to happen. It's just a maybe. But if it does, you want to be ready to take advantage of it and buy more gold because it's going up. It's just a question of whether it goes down first. And the reason it would go down first is because of that phenomenon in a stock market crash, which I think is entirely possible. You could see gold trade off pretty hard and that would be a fantastic buying opportunity. So you want to own gold here. Don't sell your gold, but you also want to have some dry powder ready to buy more gold if we get a crash and better prices. So Eric, let's talk 10-year yields because at least on my chart, it printed spot 36 on the downside. Now, both of us agreed that yields were going lower, but I just couldn't believe how fast we got down here. What's your take on all of this? Well, when I said last week that I expected 50 basis points or lower, maybe even down to 25 basis points before the coronavirus crisis was over, I meant the whole crisis, the one that's barely even gotten started so far, that hasn't really happened yet. We got in one week, not quite to 25, but I, I think I think 36 might have been a, an end of day low because I could have swear that I saw lower prints on an intraday basis. I don't know what the intraday bottom was, but I think I saw 31 it one point. Anyway, holy cow, low yields is what we saw this week. So I think the market event that coronavirus is going to create for the economy and for financial markets is way less than half over. I think we're just barely getting started. If you figure that we've already come down more than 100 basis points on the 10-year yield, and we really haven't even gotten started yet, well, that ought to mean there's at least another 100 basis points before it's over. Well, wait a minute. If we're already down to 36 basis points, that means in order to go another basis points, you'd be going into negative yields on the U.S. 10-year to the tune of 65 basis points or so. Wow. I have to admit, I'm not an expert on the zero lower bound and whether it really is a bound, so to speak, or if it's just another number along the way to the negative yields that Danielle DiMartino Booth has predicted for more than a year now on Macro Voices. So the conviction that I do have is this market event is just getting started. It's got a long way to go. And I think there's a lot of reason if we were starting from a higher number, I, I would say there's a lot of room for yields to move farther. Can they move farther when they've only got 35 basis points to go before they turn negative? I'm going to ask Axel that question in today's feature interview. So this week's feature interview guest is Axel Merck. So why did we invite Axel back onto the show this week? First of all, it's been a long, long time. I think it's been a year and a half, two years since we had Axel on the program. He's a very well-known, well-respected guy. But particularly, the reason I wanted to get him on now is he's a currency guy. He's a macro guy, but he's got a particular focus on currencies. I think he runs a couple of currency mutual funds. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what products his, his firm offers. He's got a lot of background in areas that I think are very relevant to the events that are going on right now, because something that I've even just 
begun to try to get my head around is, okay, what are the Forex implications of this whole coronavirus thing? And, and what happens when we have some countries that are more adversely affected than others? And how does that affect their currency pairs and so on and so forth? Axel's a really great guy to bring on for that kind of commentary. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com. In recent weeks, we've been reminded of the fragility of world financial markets and how quickly sentiment can shift from risk on to risk off. Once again, the mantra of buy the dip and the determination of central banks will be put to the test. But as Chris Cole recently told us, the best approach to investing in the long run is very different from what's worked best in recent decades. To help Macro Voices listeners navigate an uncertain future, Niels Kastrup Larsen, host of the Top Traders Unplugged podcast, has created a guide to the best investment books of all time. You can get a free copy at toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro guide. And be sure to listen to my full length interview with Niels Kastrup Larsen on trend following. The download link is in your research roundup email. Check out toptradersunplugged.com today. You'll be glad you did. Eric's interview with Axel Merck is coming up as Macro Voices continues right here at macrovoices.com. And now with this week's special guest, here's hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. Joining me now is Axel Merck, founder of Merck Investments. Axel, it's great to get you back on the show. It's been way too long. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Let's start with the high-level big picture of what's going on, both uh, stock market coming off of its all-time highs, new all-time lows in bond yields. Is this all about the coronavirus crisis, or is the coronavirus just a catalyst that brought something else about? Well, great to be with you. In this industry, we always love to give a story to the action. And by all means, let's fit that story, right? Um, I mean, clearly, we've had many a bull market. Stocks were at an all-time high. They may have been due for correction, according to many. And then, sure enough, we, we got a shock, and it helped us. Uh, and, and so, uh, I mean, ultimately, does it really matter? One of the things, if you've been around the block a few times, notice that there's a storyline that starts these things. And then these stories evolve. Remember in, in 2000, for example, or whenever you've had a, a crisis or a bear market coming, it starts somewhere, but then suddenly there are ripple effects that you don't foresee. And the challenge with focusing on one item is that then precisely you forget the big picture, that uh, maybe stocks are expensive, maybe this happens or that happens. Now, does that mean I have a crystal ball? What's going to happen tomorrow? Absolutely not. I, I don't think anybody has. Uh, what we can do is risk management and, and, and pursue the plan that we have. And where do you think about the, the current valuations on the stock market? What we're seeing is we're recording on Tuesday afternoon. Haven't quite retested the, the lows from the last couple of days. We're about 27.50 on the S&P right now. Uh, are the lows in? Or is this just the beginning? How do you see this playing out from here? Well, forecasts are difficult when they deal with the future. What we, what we do know is that volatility in recent days has been extreme. Historically, that's been an indicator that we're trying to find a bottom. We know that the earnings yield in the in the S and P five hundred or the cash flow yield is high. Now, the earnings may be coming down because of the, the, the shock we have, and, and aside from Corona, obviously the the oil surprise we've had there. But even if 
cash flow is cut in half relative to the yields in treasuries, stocks are attractive. Now, as we also know, stocks tend to overreact on the upside and on the downside. So I'm not going to be there uh, trying to catch a falling knife if that's what it is. That said, as I indicated just before, it's about sticking to a strategy. So, And most people don't. So if your strategy is, let's say you have a 60-40 portfolio, well, what you ought to have done on the way up is gradually take some chips off the table and move it to the quote-unquote safer bucket. And we can talk about that safety bucket, how it's not safe anymore. But still, there's a strategy, right? And so similarly then, as the market tumbles, you might want to rebalance back in, whether there's a low or not, just so that you have this consistent layout. What has happened in practice is investors have wanted to have their cake and eat it. So they don't want to take gains. Maybe it is because they, they don't want to pay the taxes on the gains, but instead, the way they have to kick and eat it, they're adding a tiny component to a portfolio that's super volatile but diversified. I'm thinking about gold, gold mining type of thing. And that's certainly not safe. But they, they think that that's how they can get the diversification. If people were already spooked, they would be moving to cash. And so we've seen, obviously, some of that in recent days. But a lot of the action we've had in this extreme volatility has been a deleveraging of leveraged players, which obviously happens after a period of extended low volatility, people gear up and then it blows up in their faces. Axel, you're known as a currency expert, among other things. Quite a few people, myself included, held a view about the U.S. dollar in this coronavirus crisis. We felt that, hey, this, this thing's going to affect the whole world, and uh, it seems like it's going to affect the United States last. It's got to be super bullish for the U.S. dollar as safety trades go out of other assets and into U.S. dollar-denominated assets. Market says we got it dead wrong, and I'll be the first to admit I don't understand why. What the heck is going on that all of this is so dollar negative? Well, the market teaches us to be humble. Whatever prevailing view there may be, we may have on just about anything, we're proven wrong. And it could be technicals, it could be fundamentals. But let's keep in mind that the dollar is a high-yielding currency these days. It's the highest-yielding G10 currencies. As of a few weeks ago, the real yields based on the, the break-even rates, 10-year rates, are negative. That's unusual for the dollar. But, but still, the dollar is a high-yielding currency. And so when you have a risk-off environment, the high-yielding currency gets sold and the funding currency gets bought. Historically, that was only the yen, maybe the Swiss franc. These days, it's the euro as well. And if you talk about the dollar, it's usually the dollar index, and the dollar index has a heavy overweight of the euro, and the euro was hated by everybody going into this virus. And so, sure enough, people took down leverage, which means they had to buy the euro, sell the dollar. And so usually when you have these crunches, it, it kind of goes that everybody needs to get their funding in US dollars and so forth. But this time around, that's how it played out. And if you want to have a story, that's the story that explains why it is. But obviously, as we talk on this specific day, it's the other way around, right? So all these things, they work for a while. And then there is again a storyline that will take over. Let's move on to treasury yields, because this is another area where uh, I guess it's one that I, I got right, but I've been amazed at, at how right it, it doesn't really jibe with my expectations. I think it was three weeks ago, I told our audience, I think we're going below that record low from 2016 of one spot 34 on the 10-year the yield. And everybody thought I was crazy. We got lots of emails from listeners saying that's nuts. A week later, we were there. I said, I think we're going sub 1%. A week later, we were at 92 basis 
points. That was last week. I said, I think we're going to 50 basis points before this coronavirus situation is over. Uh, I didn't think it was going to happen in less than a week. And boy, what did we get down to? 27 bips or something? I mean, just crazy. So first question is, why is the yield on treasuries crashing so hard when the stock market, I mean, yeah, it's down and it, it was a very significant day on Monday this week, but nothing in my mind compared to what's going on with treasury yields. Why so much action there and can it continue? Well, many questions. There are several that you didn't ask. One is the, the speed. I think the hallmark of this correction, if you want to call it such, is the speed. Markets have been functioning properly. There have been no big gaps other than there's some very quiet Asian hours. These markets have been working well, and we can talk about the functioning of the market as well. And and yes, the bond market has been screaming, but the equity market has held up reasonably well, except for Monday the 9th of March, right, where where we've had this uh, amazing plunge. And it's, 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 we talk about these crocodile jaws where you have these correlation charts and suddenly they diverge and then they snap back together. Right. And and so you can have these dislocations or these abnormalities in the markets for an extended period, but then they have to meet somehow. And obviously, I mean the reason why treasuries rally is because there's a flight to safety. And when you have a flight to safety, you go to the one that's most liquid. And so that tends to be treasuries. That also happens to be the yen. Right. When you need to have quote unquote safety immediately, and I'm not making an endorsement of anything safe here. The yen is something that's liquid. So people pile into it and the yen was up over 3% on, on, on Monday the 9th, right? And so those sort of things can happen. And yes, in my view, that, that is extreme. Now, at the same time, you can also say, Hey, maybe that's the new normal. Maybe that is how I'm going to be. Maybe we're going to be living in a world where we all are working remotely and are never going to consume anything anymore. We can talk about that. I happen to disagree on that, but the market seems to be taking the most recent news as the most important one. And you mentioned, is it all the coronavirus? Well, maybe we, we price in a, a different type of government in the U.S. that's not as business friendly, right? There are all kinds of things that the market might be pricing in going forward that when the glass is half empty, well, darn it is half empty. And obviously, you can be at the other side of that trade and see an opportunity. More broadly speaking, though, and if I can make that broader point, with yields as low, and Monday the night is probably going to prove me wrong on that, but can bonds really provide that sort of diversification that you want them to do? People buy bonds rarely because they love them, but because in that 60-40 portfolio, that 40 bucket is providing them that sort of diversification. And the Wall Street Journal several weeks ago kind of had an analysis that in the Eurozone, bonds don't rally as much anymore in risk-off environments. Now, Monday, they rallied again. But, but still, can you still get the sort of diversification you used to get in bonds? I think that is the sort of thing that investors should chew on. How the hell do you diversify going forward? Because ultimately, you I mean, of course, you can have a crystal ball and know what's going to happen. But if not, you, you want to have some safeguards in your portfolio. And are the traditional safeguards still, still working? Let's talk about the zero bound on treasury yields and whether it really is a magic line in the sand. There's a lot of people who have made the argument that because the U.S. dollar is still the world's global reserve currency, it's impossible for the U.S. 10-year to actually trade at negative yields. Uh, I have to note that the exact same people said the same thing about the German Bund a couple of years ago, and we're wrong. But let's discuss, is there a magic number at zero, or is it just a step along the way as we see potentially a move into negative yields for the U.S. Uh, Treasury bonds? 
Well, the financial crisis and the years since have taught us to be humble, that policymakers can come up with the craziest of ideas. And so on the tenure, I would say absolutely not. There is no, no magic line. The question to me is more, is there a magic line on the short end? Can the Fed funds rate be negative? And in, in the Eurozone, we have negative rates as, as an example. And I don't think they're terribly happy with it. I, I have a hard time imagining that will go negative in the U.S. simply because of the structure of the market. Just think about money market funds. They would yield negative returns for retail investors. In Europe, the negative rates are felt by institutions, but not by retail. It's a, That's a big, big leap to take. And as, as you know, the, the Swedes, for example, they got rid of the negative rates. They say it's stupid. I mean, they didn't use other words, but that's effectively, it doesn't work. And so... The, the sort of chatter I hear right now, I first heard it in Europe, I heard it uh, as we speak this morning in, in the US on, on a major news channel is, is that, well, why not ease the capital standards of the banks and so get rid of some of these, these very tight standards in this environment to make sure that money flows to the small and medium-sized enterprises. And so in the sort of environment we're in, I would think those sort of policies would be more effective I mean, more effective is fiscal policy, but if you want to do something on the monetary side, easing the, the standards for the banks in a way that they can provide more money to where it's needed is going to be more effective than, than cutting rates. But to the question, can the long tenure be negative? I would think absolutely it can. So with that in mind, would you say at this point in the crisis, I, I think that the coronavirus situation, unfortunately, we're really only looking at the beginning of the crisis. Europe is just starting to really hit the, the inflection point in that exponential growth curve. Italy's hospital systems are completely overwhelmed already, but really it's only Italy. I, I think the same is coming for the rest of Europe and then ultimately for the United States. And some people have estimated that by the second week of May, every hospital bed in the United States will be overbooked and you know there will be a necessity of triage to turn away some people that need hospital care. And I think that could occur globally. So with those kinds of things, I guess the, the first question let's start with is, do you agree that those kinds of risks are on the table? Yeah, before I answer that, let me do one more comment on the 10-year. Negative yield on a 10-year means that people rather give money to a government than invest in any other project. And to me, that is not necessarily a monetary uh, phenomenon. It's a regulatory phenomenon. It's a, it's a phenomenon where people just don't see possibilities to invest in something. And that's very, very odd to me. And I don't think a virus can even stop that. If you have a well-functioning economy, and I'd be the first to say Europe has lots of problems, in the U.S., that shouldn't be the case. You should be able to have a, a yield curve where the 10-year is not negative. So it should be possible. But obviously, in times of panic and so forth, it, it can be. Now, yes, a healthcare system being overwhelmed, absolutely, that's possible. I mean, there are, there are stories coming out of Italy that the hospitals get revamped. Every single patient has the same diagnosis. Everything else is, is put on the sideline and uh, lots of challenges. Now, that said, the Chinese say they have gotten things under control. We obviously always have to take these things with a grain of salt. I like to look at the South Korean data. The South Korean appears to have been the most meticulous and they have more trustworthy data. The South Koreans have drive-through tests these days. And, and so there you can get a hunch of mortality rates and whatnot. But put differently, if people are still around, some people might go bankrupt in this environment. Let's say in fracking, right? Uh, oil prices plunge and suddenly you can't sell anything anymore. 
you might go out of business, but that means the debt holders will take over the, the equipment and they can operate it. And if the marginal cost is, is higher than the cost of, of running this thing, or if it's too expensive to shut it down, we'll continue to keep this running. Similarly, if you don't, if you sit at home and save the money on fuel or you save money on fuel because you spend less, you will have higher saving and you can spend that elsewhere. Eventually people will do it. The, the question to me is, that what will happen in the interim period as we transition to this sort of environment? Will systems be overwhelmed in the interim? Absolutely. That's very likely. And so certain sectors of the economy will be affected. I actually traveled the last um, two weeks a uh, little bit. I was in Europe as well. And depending on the folks I was with, they have a very different attitude towards towards the coronavirus. And, and obviously, people are complacent about it until it hits them. But can this induce a severe slowdown? Absolutely. There's a saying that the markets will recover when the policymakers panic, or they, the markets will stop panicking when the policymakers start panicking. And so, if we, and that's part of the reason, as we talked, there was this rumor we'll have a fiscal response in the US. And not too surprisingly, it's going to take a little while to get that in shape. And so, if we have the sort of leadership that gets people confident that we can get the grip on that, then we can go back to life is normal or the new normal. So we've had a dramatic correction in the market. Is it enough or will we go down another 20, 30, 40%, right? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows, but it's the role of, of policymakers to help instill confidence. And uh, I think while we'll all be critical of the response, over time, they'll get a better handle of it, just as they did in China. In the beginning, we were critical. And now she just went to war, right, to show that everything is in order. Obviously, we don't know what it is, but it's those sort of things that will help to regain the confidence of people. I want to pick up on something you said a minute ago, and, and this relates to what some of our other guests, like Jeff Snyder, have said on Macro Voices, which is we've gotten to the point in this zero-yield environment where U.S. Treasury bonds are no longer a sensible investment. They're, they're a very important balance sheet management tool for institutions. But for an individual, you know, if it's paying zero, it doesn't really make sense to have it in your portfolio. What most of the retail universe has done is they've shifted where they used to have a 60-40 portfolio with treasury bonds. Now they have it with high-yield bonds. And I, this is just my personal opinion. I think most of them don't understand that there's a reason this stuff is called junk bonds. A lot of people, myself included, have made the mistake of being early to short high yield. And of course, that's a, a negative carry trade, and it was uh, painful to, to be early to that. Is it finally time to short high yield, and what could go wrong here? Well, you said it, the negative carry can go wrong, right? I mean, that's the <laughs> that's the challenge with, with shorting in general. Most shorts are negative carry, and so you've got to get the timing right. I mean, that's, that's the gist of that. You just have a battle against time. And so you, you better be darn good or darn lucky to be able to short. That's why for most people, cash is a more prudent diversifier unless you do some long short strategy where you can mitigate the impact of the short by having a systematic or some other sort of strategy that allows you to, to, to kind of balance that. We do, of course, have the, the bailout in chief, uh, the Fed, that, that makes these high-yielding things appear safer. And uh, until a few weeks ago, I was one of the few ones that was cautioning about an overheating economy. Now, you can throw all the egg in my face that you want to, but 
the challenge we have is, or had until recently, we had near full employment, tight labor market, right? And we have accommodative monetary policy. Even now, you could argue for providing a stimulus on top of that. What happens if the bad case scenarios don't unfold? And at some point, if we're at the tail end of this, uh, I don't know whether it's in three months, more likely in six, nine months, or is it in a year or 18 months, or maybe the world is falling apart. But let's assume that people in the high skill industry may not be laying off people because they might be afraid of getting them back. And so the economy might be chunking along. And so then let's say you have an overheating economy. And obviously that's not the concern of the day, but how do you deal with that? Because then the Fed does have to hike rates. And what do you do then? And the reason I mentioned it is in context, what do you do then with the high yielding stuff? What do you do with the companies that are at that brink? Uh, you cannot hike rates without toppling them over. So the, the Fed put, so to speak, has locked them in. And so I actually think a, a hot economy is a much bigger risk these days. If you have a, a plunging economy, we know what the Fed does. They can pretty much guarantee everything that's out there. And all the zombie enterprises can continue living happily ever after. Um, and of course, the flip side of that is, yeah, investors are piling in on that stuff. Now, what they may have realized is, yeah, high yield stuff is highly correlated with risk assets. Now, we've had spreads widen in the high yield space, but because the, the yields on the safe stuff has come down so much, the overall borrowing cost actually hasn't gone up that much. Now, I'm not suggesting that people were able to, to issue a lot of debt at the peak now is some of these tumultuous days, but but the the overall yields, while they, they have gone higher, we are nothing yet as far as kind of a, a system that might be seizing up. And already are we talking about, oh, we need to bail out the airlines. We need to provide help here and there. So as a reminder, we have an election year. So it's in the administration's interest to keep the economy rolling. And so maybe by the time this broadcast, we know more, but odds are we'll have this 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 trickle effect of, of having one help announcement after the other to try to buffer the downturn in the economy. Now, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily going to be able to, to keep the, the markets up if the forces are bigger, but policymakers are very willing to dole out bailouts, I think. And, uh, and the only kind of pushback against that is it's an election year, and so congressional things may come late. But things like easing capital requirements of the banks, I think that, that's, a, that's something that's well within the cards of, of how, how a, uh, the executive might be reacting to, to, to the environment we are in. Just as you were speaking, uh, and this is Tuesday that we're recording this, I saw a headline go by that President Trump has indicated a willingness to provide a federal bailout to shale oil producers. That's, <laughs> that's an interesting one, and it certainly speaks to what you're saying, that, that governments are going to be very open to bailouts. As you said, it's an election year. But let's, let's talk about this. This is completely useless. The, the shale producer is a marginal producer. They tend to be smaller guys. They tend to have higher costs. And so in the, the last time we, a few years ago at Thanksgiving, OPEC decided to, to, to pump more oil, prices plunged. And, uh, and we, we currently are producing, I think, about 13 million barrels a day. The U.S. is the largest oil producer in the world. Does it matter if it dips down a little bit? Saudi Arabia is jumping in. Does it really matter if some of them go out of business? Those, those rigs will be there. The, the folks who own the debt can take it over. And continue operating that stuff. But if we do these bailouts, we are further eroding the discipline of, of capitalism. I mean, who on earth should be surprised that people are storming to Bernie Sanders and say capitalism is rigged? 
and can't blame those guys uh, because does it really hurt so much to to change that? And it's I, I have more sympathy for that if it's it's something that's in the national security of the country, right? Uh, you might have to save an airline, but even an airline can go into Chapter Eleven. They can continue operating. You can wipe out the shareholders and save the operation of the airline. And, and so I think it's, it's, it's a dangerous road we've been on in the last 10 years on these, these perma bailouts. And I don't think it's healthy for society as a whole because we, we're promoting that. Aside from the fact, I mean, we're complaining about the low growth environment for, we had for many years after the financial crisis. It's because we kept the zombie enterprises alive. And guess what? They are not as productive as if we had reinvested that capital into, into new, new businesses. Let's talk a little bit more about how this could progress, because although most political experts have opined, at least in the past, they thought it would be very, very difficult for Bernie Sanders to win the presidency, because to, to, you know, to get Americans to abandon capitalism and vote for a guy who openly embraces socialism seemed like too tough of a pill to swallow. Now, the way I look at this is, OK, hang on. That was that was then. I think the what's going to happen between now and election time in the United States is it's very, very likely that the United States will go through what Italy is going through right now. Suddenly, the guy that wants to give away health care to everybody for free sounds pretty darn good to most people. You and I might agree that, that government-controlled health care would probably do less to keep Americans safe, but most people are not going to see it that way. I think that uh, this coronavirus crisis really creates a very significant opportunity for Bernie Sanders to actually take the presidency, something I would have thought impossible before this occurred. Do you think that that is plausible? And if so, what would it mean for capital markets? I guess I give you the same response as to the 10-year yield going negative. Is it likely? No. Is it possible? Yes. And a few years ago, we would have thought it's impossible for Donald Trump to become president. And then he won the nomination. He became president, right? And so I would say it's impossible for Bernie Sanders to become the Democratic nominee. Well, is it is it really impossible? No, of course not. Now, if you look at the current trend and the prediction market, they you know fully bet on Biden. And to me, that's the more plausible scenario. Is it impossible? No. What we do know is that, yes, as the coronavirus has escalated, the prediction markets, and I'm talking about the betting markets, have given a decreasing chance of, of Trump being reelected. The these odds were at above 50% in the high 50s, and, and now it's pretty much tying with, with Biden as, as the next president. Now, mind you, these, these betting markets are, are most volatile, and so they can change on a dime. But still, as you point out, if or when this crisis worsens, the health crisis I'm referring to, then it really depends on the leadership that we're seeing. And if it's perceived not to be good, that can slow down the economy, but obviously that can also reduce the election odds. And, and yes, um, I mean, one of the things that U.S. healthcare has some pros, but it has deficiencies, right? If you are undocumented worker, you're going to get tested. If you're uh, one of the things that President Trump talked about in his uh, Monday news conference is that if your hourly worker uh, will think of something, right, that you can go get tested because otherwise, why would you get tested because you're dependent on the paycheck? If you're a single parent and are, are juggling a gazillion priorities, are you going to get tested or are you going to take your kid to, to, to the next, uh, whatever, dance studio event or, or this or that, right? And so in, in Europe, 
I just talked to a bank uh, this morning in Europe, and uh, I, I don't think I've had a time when this fellow that I tried to reach hasn't been sick. I've been calling him for 10 years every couple of months, every time he's sick and he's back in two or three days. You don't have that in the U.S. because you don't have that, that safety net. And, and, and so, yeah, that can spread a virus and that can, that can have an impact. And uh, it's a historically... You elect the populist on the right after a financial crisis, and then it's quite plausible to do a sharp turn to the left. Um, right now, looks like we might, quote unquote, only get a Biden if we if we kick out Trump. But uh, but absolutely, the public can get disenchanted with one view, and uh, and the coronavirus might well be a, a catalyst for that. What would a Biden presidency mean for markets? Uh, well, I have a team of analysts that I've been sending out going through the policies. I mean, the, the good news about American, the way American politics work is usually you have gridlock. So you can deal with whoever you have. And the, the challenge always comes in when you have both the House and the Senate and the White House be of the same party, because then they can really do change. And, and, and Biden, by the way, is in favor of keeping the filibuster. And so that is that shows that the changes the odds are the changes would be more marginal. And obviously, you have a lot of rhetoric during, during the campaign, but ultimately, things don't change all that much. I happen to think that monetary policy has a bigger impact on the fabric of, of the nation than, than fiscal policy does. And, and in big chunk, that is because it is not so easy to change things. And obviously, what, what that means in practice, you do a lot of things on the executive side. And the things that you can do on the executive side, Trump has figured out, is, is immigration and trade. And it's in the news. The more <laughs> the more scandalous something appears, the, the bigger the headline and the, the happier he is, so to speak. And uh, but at the same time, now we have an election year, so it's in his interest to to calm things down. And, and obviously, with the the virus in there, it's in his interest to to ease policy where he can. And, and he obviously has a big impact on the regulation. And I mentioned one example on the banking side, but there's a lot of regulations that can be eased to provide a stimulus in case Congress doesn't come along. And so to answer your question, it really depends on whether House and the Senate would all be on the same party. Right now, the, the odds of that happening have increased, but they're still in the in the 20% range in the, in the betting markets. I think one thing we could agree on is regardless of who's president, there's very likely to be considerable more policy uh, of accommodation, monetary and, and possibly also fiscal. So let's talk about another area where you're regarded as an expert, which is precious metals. What do you see on the horizon for gold with everything that's going on? Oh, first, I disagree with you on the first one. So let me talk about that first. Okay. The policy accommodation. Um, we have in Europe a new ECB chair as of last fall, Madame Lagarde. And uh, since day one, she's been talking about climate change. And when I think of monetary policy and climate change, the one connection I would make is, well, you've got to figure out that if you had a big natural catastrophe, that, that financial institutions don't topple over because of whatever payout they have to do or because business got a business. That is not how Lagarde thinks about it. She thinks about coercing banks to favor green investment over other investments. There's obviously a huge ESG wave around the world, and she seems to be very open to the stuff that you call, I think, modern monetary theory, where you hook up with fiscal policymakers to print money to support jobs. So there is more room for monetary accommodation. If you look at Powell in the US, he obviously doesn't go as far or extreme as I would say as, as, as Lagarde does. But 
he is turning on a dime when there's a tweet on trade, when uh, the, the market panics. And so if we have a very bad case scenario on this virus, I wouldn't rule out that he's very open to cooperating with fiscal authorities to make money available. And so never say never. We've broken many taboos in the financial crisis. And when push comes to shove, monetary policy is is going to be there to support what the fiscal authorities want. So that's, that's just on that point. Now, on the precious metal side, obviously, it's been an interesting roller coaster. The, the price of gold historically isn't really correlated to anything. That makes it so beautiful. The one thing it's more correlated than many other things is real interest rates. When you hold cash and get compensated for holding cash, then obviously, why should you hold this brick that doesn't pay any dividend? But if you look at the correlation to real yields, look at the 10-year, in comparison, the price of gold has been reasonably highly correlated. And as real yields have come down, the price of gold has come up. And so there, it's, uh, I mean, you tell me if real interest rates are going to be high, then you may not want to hold gold. If you think that real interest rates are going to go low, be low, then I think gold is very sensible. The other thing, of course, is that in every bear market since the early 70s, with the big exception of the early 80s, the price of gold has done very well during a bear market in risk assets. And part of that is the lack of cash flow. When volatility goes up, the lack of cash flow provides less discounting to a cash flow that doesn't exist in gold. So that does well. But obviously, because real interest rates tend to go down as interest rates go down, and in the early 80s, real interest rates by, by Volcker were, were pushed very high. So that is that is why gold historically has been a good diversifier. And that's why we also see a lot of people buy, buy gold as a diversifier. I want to pick up on that point where you described gold as being a good diversifier against a move down in risk assets. I certainly agree with you. Couldn't agree more, in fact. In the long run, I think that uh, this pressure downward on risk assets has to be positive for gold, and I'm very bullish in the long term. But what we saw right around the 24th of February really reminded me of 2008, when in 2008, with the stock market crashing, even though it had to be bullish in the long term for gold, there were people that just had to sell everything to meet their margin calls. Are we going to see that again if this market really crashes? It seems like maybe what we saw in the last two or three weeks might be a precursor to a repeat of 2008 where, you know, correlations go to one regardless of the fundamentals. Well, <laughs> in, in the long run, the correlation of the price of gold versus the S&P 500 is zero. It's not minus one. And so that means it doesn't always work when things go down, right? And remember, price of gold has also gone up when the S&P has gone up. And so... I think the market's goal is to frustrate investors, and it's very good at that. And so I would be reluctant to say something is necessarily going to happen one way or the other. One of the things leading into this was that speculators were very long gold. And uh, when you're long gold as a speculator, when you use derivatives to buy something, you tend to be leveraged. You have a risk-off environment. You need to liquidate. And so you need to take down your positions. You need to flush those out. So it is not surprising when people are piling in on a trade that when things go rough, well, they get out of that trade, right? I mean, it might be a good idea, but when you go into something with leverage, you may need to delever when volatility goes up. And and that was exactly what we saw. And so these sort of things, when, when you know 100% that this is the thing you need to do to diversify and everybody else does it, well, then it doesn't work the way you thought it would. 
And so it's a that sort of thing can happen. And then, of course, the question is, what will policymakers do and so forth? But I mentioned earlier the, the scenario of a hot economy. Well, if we were to have a hot economy, odds are that the Fed would hike rates. But the Fed has promised not to hike rates. Would they do it? Would they not do it? And so what you get in the end is a volatile environment. The, the, the one other thing to add about gold is partially because there aren't so many fundamentals on gold, it attracts a lot of technical traders. And those guys were gone doing the bear years in gold to a significant extent because gold didn't do anything. Now that gold is more volatile again, uh, you have all these technical traders back in the game and you have more coming in every day. And and so we talk about it more in the news, but that will also exacerbate some of those moves. And uh, you can call it noise. All the more important is that you have a strategy, right? If you have a strategy to outwit the day trader, good for you. If you're a long-term investor, uh, good for you. I did say that the sort of trends if you have it as a long-term diversification, if you have it, if you have it because you think that real interest rates have a difficult time moving higher, I think it, 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 investors may want to consider it as a diversifier in their portfolio. But if you're a short-term trader, yeah, uh, you better have a good strategy. Gold itself has, on the net, done pretty well through this coronavirus crisis. It did have that that big dip down uh, as we saw equity markets sell off sharply, but it came back. On the other hand. Gold mining shares, uh, they went down, but they didn't come back or haven't so far. What's going on there and what's your outlook? Well, over a 12-month period, gold mining shares have gone up quite substantially. And uh, in, in some ways, you, you have similar things. You, uh, well, first of all, compared to the last bull market, I call it bull market we have in gold mining, uh, several things have changed. One is that at this stage, companies are still fairly prudent. They don't try to increase ounces at any cost. You have energy cost that's about a good 20% of the cost of mining has come down. So that should reach for margin expansion. Beyond that, the big companies have underinvested for, for many years. So they may need to acquire companies downstream. Now, what hasn't changed is that especially downstream, the smaller companies, they're always a notorious need of capital because they always fund the next the next exploration and so forth. And so obviously when capital markets are at risk of drying up, people are saying, oh my God, there's not going to be money around for us. All right. And, and so that that provides a challenge to the industry. And because there's this, this periodic financing requirement with many of these mining companies uh, in periods of risk off, it can well be that they get they, they get wet just like everybody else. And so historically, and also in a liquidation, a broader liquidation, those things get sold as much as anybody, and uh, the, the smaller companies are more volatile. It is a notoriously volatile re- space, and so people shouldn't expect that thing to 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 explode to the upside every day. There, there's been a very good year, and we have come back somewhat from that. I would think that as we get used to this environment, there are amazing opportunities in there. I mean, these, these smaller plays in the mining sector, they're obviously highly speculative. They're like options, right? Whether you strike gold, literally speaking. And, and so the market will reward them over time, but may not make no mistake about it, right? This is a volatile space and, and people better be comfortable with the risks that come with it. Axel, let's talk about what's coming next from the Federal Reserve. They've obviously already had an emergency 50 basis point cut that occurred between regularly scheduled meetings. Markets are already pricing in, at least according to some estimates I've seen, as much as 75 basis points of additional cuts coming. 
at their next meeting. Uh, that would be kind of unprecedented to, to first have a 50-point emergency cut, and then you know normally 75 is bigger than you would ever get in a single meeting. Is that realistic, and what should we expect? Well, Powell has been very willing to cut, obviously. I mean, the argument for cutting is, hey, we don't have inflation, and uh, why not? We don't want the yield curve to invert as we speak. Um, we're currently under three months, 10 years, 30 basis points, so we're not at the risk of in- inverting right now. But why not? Why not cut? The argument against it is that, hey, you can't cure a virus with a rate cut. We have as our senior economic advisor, Bill Poole, he until 2008 was the president of the St. Louis Fed. And uh, he recently said that, and he, he was considered a hawk, so he certainly was not in the, in the cutting camp. But he said, well, the Fed should do it. That doesn't mean they will do it. But what he said the Fed should do is, yes, they should go down with the market and cut, cut deeply but indicate that they're cutting because they don't want to drain liquidity from the market and that they will be just as willing to normalize again should these markets come back. And so cutting not so much saying, hey, we're going to now go to 0% and, uh, and, and stay there, but saying we do it so that we are not a kind of an obstacle to liquidity. And that kind of makes sense. As you point out, 75 basis points seems to be priced in. I don't know whether they'll do 50 or 75. If you look at historically, most of the time when you've had intermediate rate cut, then you had a follow-up rate cut of, uh, you had an intermediate rate cut of 50 basis points. And then at the at the actual meeting, you had another 50 basis point rate cut. Obviously, when we had the intermediate cut, the, the market tanked anyway. And that's obviously the risk. Now, obviously, if you're in Powell's shoes, there's no way to win this. If he had done nothing, then he may be accused of inaction. Had he gone 25 basis points, it wouldn't have been enough. At 50 basis points, it's wasted ammunition. So the Fed is not there to, to get praise from anybody. Mostly the Fed's role should be to, to be out of the way. And if they do what uh, Bill Poole says, then then that's as good as anything, right? Uh, if I look in what's priced in, the market is firmly betting on on deep, deep cuts. The question is, of course, hey, what happens next and so forth. I would continue to argue that you can't cure disease with this. But, I mean, with any of these things, and I think we discussed, it doesn't really matter what you are, I think. It matters what the policymakers will do. And uh, Powell has shown that he will oblige to what the market demands. That's uh, That's been his history. He hasn't been around that long, but that's that's his history, and uh, that's uh, that's what I'm working with at this stage. Well, Axel, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview. Before I let you go, please tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do at Merck Investments. I think you guys run a couple of ETFs and have some other products. For our listeners who are not already familiar with Merck Investments, give us the rundown. Sure. Well, come to MerckInvestments.com and and browse around. We do all kinds of little things. One of the things, if you want to get my live opinions, I am active on social media at Axel Merck on Twitter, where you get a live interpretation on the news. But yes, we run some investment products on the both on the precious metal side, the physical one and the mining side. We have a, a currency fund as well. We do a lot of macro work deep dives into central banks. We publish research reports. Actually, we have a research service as well where we publish consistent chart books. We're actually relaunching a, well, not relaunching, we're launching a, a, a new website pretty soon in that where it's going to be a little spiffier than, than the little arcane format we've been publishing in. And then we have a systematic FX program as well where we, it's it's one of the things that we used to have a mutual fund on it, but it wasn't popular. I happen to think it was the best thing since sliced bread. So we, we don't deploy it for, for the retail space these days. But 
one of the things you can do in the long short currency spaces, you can generate uncorrelated returns with a very well-defined risk profile, which is ultimately something I think investors would be longing for if this market is not going to be an eternal bull market. And so we, we do all kinds of little things. We have a lot of technical capabilities, but uh, for, for most folks, it might be the most entertaining to follow me on, on social media. I you want to dive deeper uh, from MerckInvestments.com. You can, you can get links to the various other things that we do. Axel, we look forward to getting you back on the program in a few months for another update. Patrick Ceresna and I will be back as Macro Voices continues right here at MacroVoices.com. Macro Voices is a listener-driven program. Please email requests for specific future interview guests to requests at macrovoices.com. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com, and we'll answer them on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. We also welcome your suggestions for how we can improve the program. Now, back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna. Eric, it was great to have Axel back on the show. And, you know, and what I really uh, loved was when you guys started talking high yield and, uh, and corporate bonds because I really wanted to spend some time in this post game talking about it. But uh, was there anything else that stood out for you in that interview? Well, Patrick, I want to update some of my own comments on this one because we did tape this interview earlier in the week, and it's a little bit stale because what's happened since we taped this is Bernie Sanders' positioning in the polls has fallen to the point where actually at this point Hillary Clinton is ahead of him, uh, and I'm not sure that she's technically even running. So I think a lot of people are completely, totally writing Bernie off at this point. He did say he wants to stay in the debate and debate Biden. Uh, A lot of people are kind of assuming he's dead man walking zombie Bernie can't possibly have a chance. I still think he has a chance. And the reason is he has made so much of his campaign in the past about free health care. What I think is about to happen, Patrick, and I'll explain this in more detail in tomorrow's podcast, is a health care emergency that will start over the next month or two. By the middle of May, we're going to have every single hospital in the United States overwhelmed to the point that they have to triage and turn some people away and just say, hospital's full. We cannot help you. We can't give you any medical care. People, even if you just had a car accident, whatever, go home and try to take care of yourself. The hospital cannot help you because we're overwhelmed with coronavirus patients. When you get to that kind of a change in what's going on in the country, I think there's a chance for a guy like Bernie Sanders who wants to give away free health care to everybody to make a comeback. So I wouldn't rule him out quite yet, even though all other indications seem to suggest he's totally out of the picture. But speaking of the picture, we've got another big picture trading chart book. Listeners, you'll find the download link in your research roundup email. It says big picture trading chart book. If you don't have the Research Roundup email, it means you're not registered yet, just go to our homepage at macrovoices.com, look for the red button that says looking for the downloads. Patrick, let's dive into the markets. On page two, you've got, looks like the S&P. Tell us what's going on here. Chart two and three are just talking points. Like uh, Chart two is a snapshot of what we showed last week, which was the analog of if this was to play out similar to 2000 and 2008, what we should expect going into April. What's amazing is that on chart three is that we're already approaching that 12 to 16% decline that would have typically taken anywhere from two, three weeks to even six weeks to fully play out. We've gotten there in two, three days, right? Like the, the speed and momentum 
momentum from which this market drop is happening is pretty amazing. And uh, while I'm showing the technical targets that are just based on a methodology, what is going to be the most interesting thing to watch is whether the technical levels even hold. I mean, you have that opinion. I, I'm i going to stand on the side that, uh, that the bounce will come off the technical levels. And uh, I think that once we hit these kind of levels around 2600, and maybe there's one measured move that even goes down to 2500. I mean, odds are we're heading down there. But uh, I think that a short term reaction going into the March 20th expiration has a very good chance. Okay, I'll buy that. One thing I certainly have to disqualify myself on is I thought that the stock market was going to show this coronavirus thing sooner and bigger than it has. And what we've seen is the stock market seems to just want to look for any reason to interpret the news to mean that there's some kind of accommodation coming that's going to help support new highs. Clearly, if you wanted to play the bearishness that I feel because of the coronavirus situation, the stock market has not been the place where it's played out most efficiently. It did much better either shorting crude or long bonds. So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I think the, the bet was that I think that you did anticipate getting to 2600 at some point, but you thought not by the end of March. Uh, I think by the end of March, we're going to be there. All right. Well, uh, what I also wanted to just reference was the fact that uh, there is a pretty interesting options delta influence coming into the March 20th expiration, which Charlie McElligot was pointing out, was uh, that there was a very, very large amount of options that were up in the higher strikes that all have the March 20th expiration that have built massive delta to the tune of like $500 billion. Thing is, to roll those in this high vol condition is very difficult. And even then, and rolling them to at the money is incredibly expensive. And so if there is, um, as we approach the March 20th date, if there's a, a substantial amount of profit taking on these options, then that actually creates a tailwind from dealer buying as they unwind a lot of their future hedges that are short. And so maybe that becomes a, a liquidity catalyst for a face ripping rally into that expiration. I'm more of an observer. We'll see whether or not that actually plays out. Patrick, I have been dying to talk to you about high-yield spreads. Uh, as I think a lot of our listeners know, I, I am probably guilty of having been early to shorting junk credit way too many times. I think I actually discussed the junk bond trade with Jim Rogers on episode number one of Macro Voices four years ago, four and a half years ago. And Jim and I weren't sure if it was you know right now or, or next week that we should start shorting junk. Is it finally time? Well, really what I wanted to talk about was just how bad of a blowout this is, but in much bigger picture, how much worse it can still get. And so the credit spreads, just for clarification to our listeners, is the spread of uh, what you earn on uh, interest rates on high yield versus that of treasury. And so right now we're trading at 638 basis points. But we were consolidating, you know, under 400 at one point. And so a pretty significant blowout. I mean, um, clearly at least a 50 plus percent increase in those credit spreads. But what I have here is a chart going back 20 years. And it shows not only the peak of the uh, recession of 2000 to 2003, the peak of 2008, 2009, but also the 2011 and 2016 blowouts in credit spreads. And what's uh, amazing is that each one of 
of those blowouts all blew out anywhere from 900 to 1100 basis points. And then in the crisis of 2008, it went to over 2000 basis points. So there is room for even another 50% to even a you know, 100% doubling of the credit spread if the risk of defaults and credit spreads, well, risk of default grows inside there that has to start being baked into the cake, right? Okay, Patrick. So this page four is showing us credit spreads, which is the differential in yield between junk bonds and treasury bonds. Moving on to page five, we're looking directly at junk bond yields as opposed to the differential between junk bond yields and treasury yields. Why this slide? What is this picture telling us? And boy, that's a big move, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, we we saw a jump from 5% to 7%. And really what I wanted to do is just show how that translated into the drop in many of those junk bond yield ETFs on page six. And so what we had was this big jump in yields on those high yield bonds that are rated uh, double B or worse. And what's amazing is when we look at a, a longer term chart going back, you know, five plus years, you can see that uh, junk bonds had a devastating drop during the oil crisis, started peaking out in 2014 and it obviously bottomed at that 2016 level where where we we saw you know a 30% wipeout in bonds but what's amazing is that this drop that just happened in the last week and change has basically brought us back down to the price levels we've only seen back in 2016 and during the 2018 little dive that we had during the Christmas massacre and what's interesting here is if this is just the beginning how low does this go Right. Like we, we haven't started seeing any real blowout of, of spreads to the levels we've seen at, at their final culmination points. And so really, I mean, could we see this thing down to 90 bucks or lower when when this is all said and done? It's going to be really interesting to watch. Right. Definitely. It's going to be really interesting to watch. But what I think might be even more interesting, Patrick, on page six here, we're looking at actual junk rated credit, the bonds that have already been given a junk rating by the rating bureaus. But moving on to page seven, you're showing triple B rated credit. That's the lowest investment grade bond rating that there is. And of course, the speculation, which we've discussed in past episodes of Macro Voices, is if there's a credit dislocation, these triple Bs could get downgraded from triple B to junk. Once they're junk, there's a reflexivity there. All, all the institutional holders are forced to sell them whether they want to or not, and it creates a bloodbath. Is that something we should be thinking about uh, this event maybe being the trigger for? Yeah. Well, I read a headline and I don't, I didn't fact check it, but it's something on the tune of like a hundred to $150 billion of triple B energy bonds are at risk of a downgrade here because of this massive drop in oil. And uh, that certainly has brought a lot of fear now into the investment grade space. This was a, a really interesting spot because one of the, you know, referring back to the Chris Cole interview, he, he's talking about this idea of where you could buy tail risk that has a correlation and is not priced in an expensive way. And what I found fascinating was that in investment grade bonds, everyone was treating them and they continued to, at least last week, trade uh, like they were paired and sistered with treasury bonds. And uh, to me, uh, they weren't accounting for any of the credit risks that really um, they were vulnerable to. And so that was a great place where we put on a big picture trading, some uh, ratioed 
put spreads, buying some uh, some nice tail risk uh, insurance on the downside, and and well, again, that was it's just uh, started working really well. I mean, we saw going just jumping to chart nine, you can see that that's just the LQD, which is the investment grade corporate bond ETF, and you can see up until last week, it was just uh, you know correlated to Treasury bonds, and and as Treasury bond yields were declining, and you had your bonds like the TLT and IEF and everything ripping higher, you basically had uh, LQD jumping on to the coattails and going for a ride like it was all investment grade and there was no problems. And suddenly this week, investment grade started to care. That oil drop basically broke its spine. And it's going to be fascinating to watch how bad these can break in this environment, right? And especially if Treasury bonds have hit a short-term peak as the uh, maybe the bond yields at least are a little bit overdone on the short term. The question is, uh, will we see this move accelerate considerably in the investment grade space, right? And I think time will tell because the big question, just hearing you talk about this, to my mind, is one that's a little bit hard to know, which is some people think that what's going on between Saudi Arabia and Russia right now is the so-called escalate to negotiate. You know, they're making all of these really, really bold threats. And a lot of people are saying they couldn't possibly actually mean this stuff. Surely they're going to come to the table and make a deal and there's going to be a production cut and everything's going to be all better any day now. If that doesn't happen, Patrick, we could easily see oil prices in the teens and the credit in the U.S. shale drillers is going to be completely no bid at that point. And I think anything could happen in terms of downgrades and so forth. But on that note, let's go ahead and move on to page 10, my favorite subject, crude oil. What do you got going on here? I just really wanted to share a chart of just uh, how crazy of a drop we just witnessed. Like, uh, do you remember seeing, like, I know that 2016 was ugly, but that was a systematic sell-off where oil was just down every day. But for us to move from 46 bucks down to $27 in literally a two-day window is just unbelievable. Have you ever seen something like this? Well, I think this was engineered. First of all, you, you said 2016, that's where the bottom happened. That selling started in 2014. But I think this one was engineered, Patrick, because the first thing that you had on Friday, and it was entirely coronavirus driven, was a breakdown and a close on a weekly basis below 42 spot 36, which was the previous low that it held for almost four years, I, I believe. So we already had a setup where I thought that the coronavirus crisis was going to take us back to $26 oil. 26 spot 05 was the intraday low back in early 2016. Uh, I thought it would take a couple of weeks to get there and we'd have to wait for more bad news to come out in, on the coronavirus front. I think that Mohammed bin Salman understood all of that. So when Russia walked away from the negotiating table, I think Ben Salman looked at this situation and said, I know we're going lower and I can't stop it from going lower. And I look like the dummy right now because I'm the one who's pushing for a production cut. And if we can't come to a production cut, prices are going to slide back down to 26 bucks. And I look like I'm losing control. Makes much more sense for me to save face and not look like I'm losing control and make this my idea. So he announces on Saturday, that's after we saw 
that signal on Friday's close, which was a strong technical signal that we were probably headed back to 26 no matter what. I think he said, if we're going back to 26, I'm going to make this look like I did it intentionally. And he says, we're going to ramp up production dramatically. Russia, we're not going to take any more of this. You either play ball with us or we're going to compete head to head and allow prices to collapse. And we'll just try as best as we can to make it up on competing with you for market share. He knew he was going to crash prices, but at least it looks like he's in control of the market as opposed to it looking like he's losing control of the market, which is how it would have appeared otherwise. So instead of getting to $27 over the next month, we got to $27 almost at the open. I think uh, there was actually two halts before trading could even begin. And then we very quickly traded down to $27. We're bouncing now. Now, if Russia were to come back to the table, and start to talk about a cut, then they could maybe salvage this. And it would look like Ben Salman was in control of everything and on top of everything all the while, and then they could engineer a rally up from here. I don't think it would get very far. They might close that gap, but it would roll over shortly thereafter, and we'd still get to 26 bucks on coronavirus-related news, taking the market lower. So I, I think that we got here sooner than we otherwise would have, but we were coming here anyway. The thing is, Patrick, if Russia stands firm and doesn't come back and agree to a cut, and Saudi Arabia stands firm, and they're not just bluffing, but this is real— and we get the outlook that I see coming for coronavirus, these things all compounding together could easily take us to $15 oil before this is over. All right. Well, what I wanted to just end the chart book with is I wanted to do just a quick shout out to the rest of the world. And so I just grabbed two charts. One, uh, just the, the emerging markets ETF on a weekly chart that kind of encompasses a good chunk of the world outside of obviously some of these core developed nations. And what was really interesting to me on this is that we have now broken below the uh, September, December 2018 lows. And uh, it really looks at this stage that with a failed rally throughout a good chunk of 2019, uh, well, at least a rally that failed to go anywhere near its 2018 highs, this usually, uh, from a, as a technician, is quite bearish, and it really does open the window for uh, emerging markets to underperform. And considering what's happened in much of the commodity space and the global growth slowing, you have to think that the emerging markets remain quite vulnerable going here in the months ahead. And the other chart I wanted to look at was that Eurostock 50 index. And what I found fascinating was just the magnitude of the drop in such short order. I mean, the Eurostock was making fresh new 52-week highs exceeding the 2018 and 17 highs on the Eurostock, which all housed around 3,600 when it punched there at the start of the year. And not only did we in just several weeks now wipe out all of the progress, but we're almost back to 2016 lows in just like three weeks. And so while we think we've uh, had a bad in North American markets, this Euro stock had just a devastating drop that basically wiped out several years of performance in one shot like this. It's just amazing to see. Well, think about what's going on, though, with the coronavirus story, Patrick. It's happening 
for real right now in Europe. Now, it's coming to the United States in just as big of a way as it's happening in Europe. It'll be just as big in the U.S. in the next two or three weeks as it is in Europe now. But everybody seems to be in denial about that. So the question in my mind is, is this Eurostocks chart an indication of what the S&P is going to do next? Or does the S&P have a certain degree of sovereign bank immunity, if you will, in the sense that uh, it's very likely that a big drop of this magnitude in the S&P would be be met with intervention from the Fed. So that's going to be, uh, I think, really interesting to watch. Also, listeners, if you don't already know, you can get a free membership. You can watch Patrick every single day with his play-by-play on the markets by going to bigpicturetrading.com and signing up for a free trial. This episode was made possible by toptradersunplugged.com. Remember to get the ultimate guide to the best investing books ever written at toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro guide. For information on sponsoring Macro Voices, please visit macrovoices.com forward slash sponsor info. Listeners, be sure to register a free account at macrovoices.com. The benefit to you is you'll receive our research roundup email, which provides you with all of the best free content that we could find on the internet each week, including downloads associated with our guest appearances, as well as, of course, our post-game chart books. Patrick, tell them what they missed in this week's research roundup. Well, this week, you're going to find the transcript for today's interview with Axel, as well as the links to that chart book we just discussed in the post game. There's also a link to an article discussing what Ray Dalio thinks needs to be done to fight the coronavirus, as well as an article discussing the liquidity problem of passive investing. So you'll find this and so much more in this week's research roundup. That does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we get from our listeners, and we're always looking for suggestions on how we can make the program even better. For those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners, send us an email at researchroundup at macrovoices.com or tag it with the MVRR hashtag on Twitter and we'll include it in our weekly distributions. If you have not already, follow our main Twitter account at macrovoices for all the most recent updates and releases. You can also follow Eric on Twitter at Eric S. Townsend and myself at Patrick Ceresna. On behalf of Eric Townsend and myself, thank you for listening and we'll see you all next week. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. 
Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com.